Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Judges, and I hope you have your Bible with you. You'll want to bring it with you to make sure what I'm saying is there, and to make sure that you're a good student, and that we are asking our Lord to teach us from His Word for the purpose of understanding and obeying. We're going to read the first Uh, Six verses or so in the 17th chapter of the book of Judges. And uh, then we'll pray and ask for help. So let's begin reading. Verse 1 of chapter 17. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son of the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your help to understand this passage. And we ask for your strength to be obedient to what we see in it as a place where we need to change. Lord, I ask that you give us a keen awareness of our own depravity, our own fallenness, so that we don't look at this passage as so distant and strange from our own situation. Lord, thank you again for time to study together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, the precious Word of God. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, the study of these two chapters, and we're going to read down into the rest of chapter 17, which is uh, relatively short compared to chapter 18. We're going to look at these two for today, and we'll leave the last three for next week. And the material itself within these two chapters is going to be easy enough to understand. There's not a lot here. It's a narrative, a story of what took place with at least three different characters, two individuals and one large group of people. And though the story is going to be quite bizarre, uh, it's straightforward. The obedience part of this, that's the understanding part. The obeying part is going to be more difficult for us. uh, And the reason why we ask for help in prayer. The false... Religion of idolatry. That's the theme of these two chapters. Uh, When we read this and look at it, it's going to look like stupidity to us. And the reason why it's going to be hard to obey it is because the very same thing in our own hearts will not at all look stupid to us. 
because we're most likely blind to it. We're going to find the key to this whole thing is what's right in our own eyes. That's what these people are doing. It makes sense to them. It's right to them. It's dumb to us. And maybe what they would read if they read about our lives and our schedules, our checkbooks, our transportation, they might look at that and say, good grief. Why in the world would they do that? Didn't God tell them not to do what they're doing? But see, that would be the mistake of thinking that we're so different from one another. And that's what we'll have to make sure, on purpose, we don't overlook or avoid. Perhaps our Lord will use today what was a problem in ancient Israel to work on what still is a problem as close as our own hearts. At least that's the game plan of our time together this morning. So we've moved more or less to the end of the book of Judges. We've got a few chapters left, but most study Bibles would assign this a section called an appendix. And uh, you might just want to title them, as I've seen them titled before, a collection of of sad stories. That's what they are. Um, Unhappy stories, perhaps. There's no judge mentioned in any of these chapters. We met the last one. He was Samson. Uh, There's no cycle of repentance or salvation in these chapters. Those are gone. These are just, again, sad stories to show us the state that Israel has found itself in and by her own making. Uh, What we will see repeated at least four times is what we finished with right before we prayed in verse 6. And that is the repetition of of a sad refrain. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the full version. We'll see the half version twice. Once more before we finish today, where it just says there's no king. And then we pick up next week, there's no king. And then the very last thing we'll read is, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. That seems to be the thing that that bookends the appendix in these sad stories that we'll read. Um... The words seem to function, those that we just read, and this is key, you might want to write this down, more as an explanation of what we're reading, rather than a condemnation on it. What do I mean by that? Well, we're not going to find the narrator helping us out in any of what we're going to read as far as giving us what God thought about it. We're not going to read that God was displeased in what was taking place we're not going to read that the narrator in his own voice would say this was a bad move Uh, this is a a judgment-free zone right here in the appendix though the rest of scripture sits in judgment on it and if we pay attention we'll see that veiled within the way the author writes this there's judgment all through it but it's not out on the surface really that statement in those days there's no king Everyone's doing what's right in his own eyes as a way to explain how situations like this could take place. And you might say you could use the very same thing to describe or explain away some of the goofy things we see in our own culture. There's really no one in charge. There's no real authority structure. And we've conditioned ourselves since birth perhaps... To just say, you know what, we'll just do what's right according to us. And you can do what's right according to you. And we won't say anything to you. And you don't say anything to us. We'll just kind of call our own shots. And that's, that's the way we'll handle business. Well, that's exactly what's going on here. And the best way to describe the bizarrety 
It's just to say, it's because no one's in charge. And they're all doing what they see fit to do. Now the narrator doesn't waste much ink getting started with the story that we read part of already. He gives us the basic facts. And here's the rundown just in case you missed any of it. A man named Micah stole 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. Not knowing it was her son that took the money, she utters a curse on the person who did it. Micah hears the curse, confesses that he was the thief, and says he'll return the silver. On hearing this, Micah's mother blesses her son in the name of Yahweh. Uh, That's the first red flag, isn't it? Steals money from his mama, says he's sorry, gives it back, and she blesses his name. Well, actually him in the name of God. Micah returns the money like he said. His mother, mother then tells him that the money had been consecrated to God for the purpose of making an idol. Second red flag. And the idol's for him. She then gives 200 of the 1,100 pieces of silver to a silversmith who makes the idol for them. So the idol ends up in Micah's house and his mother accomplishes what she had intended. So if we're just running through that... And uh, we basically don't know much about the Bible or have an understanding about God. It might actually look like a happy story, wouldn't it? I mean, if you just look at it on that level, it's a, it's a story. That part has a happy ending. A curse is turned to a blessing. Thievery is overcome by confession. A mother's hopes for a son are realized. A broken relationship is restored. And God gets worshipped. But we don't read that story that way. We look at that, and even though we're very much American, we say that's not at all kosher. Right? In fact, some of that story is just flat out messed up. We know better than this. But it doesn't look like they know better than this. Why would Micah's mother consecrate silver to God in order to make an idol? Doesn't she know the second commandment? You're not supposed to make a graven image. And that's after the first commandment, no other gods before me. So which is it, idol worship or Yahweh worship? She seems to be involved in both. Something that God has explicitly told the Hebrews never to do, that's exactly what she does. And then what happened to the other 900 pieces of the 1,100 pieces of silver? You know, she only took 200 to make the idol. Is she going cheap on that form of idol worship? Don't know. We're not told, but... Point was, she said that money was for God, but then she only gave a portion to it. So, right off the bat, you've got a coupling of the devotion to God and idolatry at the same time, and then a decoupling of what she said she'd do as opposed to what she actually did. So, this story doesn't add up. And then we're told that Micah's house is clearly much more than a normal residence. You'd need to know a little bit of the background into the area where they lived and the things that some of these people did that carried over from Canaanites. But his house, as described in Hebrew, has all the paraphernalia of a shrine. The SV actually uses the word shrine there. Complete with an ephod. That would be something that the priest would wear. But then Gideon made his own and we don't know exactly what that looked like. And it was a very bad deal and it was a snare to them. And the people of Israel whored after it, so not good. Then a teraphim, that's the Hebrew word for household gods. We see those every now and then in Scripture. We see Rachel having stowed them away in the saddle on the camel, sitting on them that her father couldn't have. That was a problem. 
It's because they're not supposed to have them. Then there's this newly acquired idol, maybe two of them, one carved and one metal, or a carved uh, wooden idol overlaid with the metal, we're not sure. And then his own priest, which he takes care of by consecrating one of his own sons, which you can't do that. The real priests are Levites. And he's not a Levite. And there's very rigid restrictions on how that takes place. And it's not to be done at your home. Um, Do-it-yourself kit, make a priest out of your son. It's not something uh, you would find uh, endorsed uh, by God or any of his appointed men. Nothing in this arrangement is in keeping with the law God had laid out for his people when he brought them out of Egypt. Nothing. This is as off the reservation as you can get as far as religious observances. That's being the the point of this whole book from the beginning. It seems to fit where it's placed in the book. It's been a, 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 a downward progression from the beginning. They're losing their identity. To the point that they're no, no longer able to see the line between obedience and paganism. That's what this story is illustrating. So the last judge, which was Samson, right? And we, we read that he did what was right in his own eyes, right? That was last week. Well, when we get to verse 6 of chapter 17, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. So now it's widespread. In other words, there's no authority structure. That, that's, there's the no king part. Nothing to reign in the confusion. Nothing to focus allegiance, loyalty, or obedience. Everyone has chosen his or her own path. And listen to this. What Micah and his mother had done were typical of the times rather than exceptional. Everyone's doing this. You know, if, if, if uh, Micah's other kids, well, I want my own idol, Mom. Everyone's doing it. Right? Everyone sees this as fitting. And notice this other thing. This is key, and we'll use this at the end. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. Not that they threw off all restraint and began to do what is wrong in their own eyes. They think they're doing the right thing. Right? If someone's doing what's right in their own eyes, then it's right. It's not what's wrong in their own eyes. It's not like they just decided, you know what? I'm going to park in a handicapped spot today because I don't care anymore. And then I'm going to go in and break in line. And if anybody's got a problem with it, they can just be mad at me. And then I'm going to steal coins out of the fountain and buy a Coke with it. And when I'm done, I'm going to throw that on the ground. Because I've just had it. I'm going to do what's wrong in my own eyes. That's not it. And we'd be wrong to think of it that way. This isn't total, absolute anarchy. But as far as the picture of God's worship that he decided, that he gave them, they are his people, he is their God, that has been co-opted and fine-tuned to suit their interests, not God's. All the while, they're doing right what's in their own eyes. So let's look at the second movement and see what happens. Verse 7, Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And uh, the careful Bible student would say, um, family of Judah who was a Levite. Um, How does that work? I don't know. And the scholars have difficulty with this too because 
uh, if you're from the family of Judah, you're not a Levite. Maybe this is just indicative of the confusion that seems to be hovering over the entire book. Or maybe it means that he'd been growing up in Judah alongside the families. Don't know. But Levites didn't have an inheritance and they traveled around. That part makes sense. It says he sojourned, verse 8. The man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. As he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. Okay, there's where these stories come together. Micah said to him, where do you come from? He said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. He's out finding himself, it looks like. Verse 10. Micah said to him, Stay with me and become to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. The Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah, the shrine of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as priest. So again, with no tribal territory for themselves, Levites lived among the other tribes, and travel was common between them. Um, it seems that the chance meeting between Micah and this traveling Levite um, seems they strike an agreement that works good for the both of them. Um, one might wonder what happened to the son that was consecrated as the priest. You know, is he out on his ear? Maybe he goes missing like the money did. We're not told, and it doesn't look as if the narrator cares. Also interesting is the dynamics between the relationship, this new relationship of a young man who Micah says, come be a father to me, and then it says he becomes like his son. Again, we're... we're struggling to figure out what that would all look like but it seems they're happy with each other and the payment is agreed upon but the goofiest part of the whole thing is verse 13 look at that now i know that the lord will prosper me because i have a levite as a priest boy i'm this is great i've got an actual bona fide levite see he knew better he knew levites were the only priests but still this doesn't work because those all the things that, that Deuteronomy would tell us about this and Leviticus, uh, they don't fit. And he's wrong, of course. In fact, as we get into chapter 18, we're going to learn he's perched right on the edge of a cliff. And he's going to lose everything he's got. And precisely at the moment where he thinks he's all set. And as far as literary device is concerned, this is exquisite irony. The narrator knows what he's doing, telling this story, building it up in our minds in order to explain to us this is what happens when there's no king and everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Look at chapter 18. In those days there was no king. There again is the half of the refrain. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtal, to spy out the land and explore it. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, 
to the house of Micah and lodged there. Here's where a third vein of the story is converging here together with what we've learned so far. Verse 3, when they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. What a coincidence. And they turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? He said to them, this is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me and I've become his priest. They said to him, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. So let me explain that chunk from verse 1 down through verse 6 of chapter 18. The tribe of Dan had already been denied access to their inheritance. Remember this from the first chapter of the book of Judges toward the end. They were pushed out into dens and holes and caves uh, from the plain. That's what they were supposed to get. Well, they couldn't get it. Now the Philistines are in the southern part of the plains. They can't go there. And then they've got Judah and Benjamin over to the east. So the only place to go is to push north, which is where Micah and uh, the Levite and those people are situated. Uh, so that's what they're doing. And uh, their mission here is described is spying out a place to inhabit. And uh, while they're doing this, they happen by this residence and this shrine and Micah and the Levite, and they happen to recognize a familiar voice. Again, what a coincidence. So they spend a few minutes catching up and hear about what we already know from what we read in chapter 17, that he'd been consecrated by... Micah, and he's been there for some time, and he's in charge of all the religious ceremonies and things. But there's one significant difference between the story as told by the narrator in chapter 17 and the story as told by this Levite in chapter 18. You might say it's not such a big deal, but I think it is. You'd be the judge. What the narrator tells us in chapter 17 is that Micah filled his hand. That's, that's the term in Hebrew, which is used over and over and over again to describe how one is consecrated. It's putting uh, a authority for a specific purpose over into someone's hand, as it were, to credential them uh, to do such and such. It'd be kind of like... Uh, some form uh, formal ceremony when someone, say, in police or FBI or in our government uh, with, with Congress being sworn in, something similar to that. That's what happened. That's what the narrator tells us Micah did with this Levite in chapter 17. But what he says to this group of friends that he's known in the past, he says, oh yeah, he's hired me and I've become his priest. So his filling of his hand is a little different the way he describes it as the way Micah... Micah's thinking, I'm consecrating this guy. The Levite is thinking, I'm getting a job. And it's a good job. And it's a hint that is not lost on these Danites here. Because they keep this in mind, and we'll see this later in the chapter. Now what takes place as a result of this, um, they ask him to inquire of the Lord... To find out whether or not their spy mission to find a place to stay will be successful. And uh, what does he tell them? 
what they want to hear. Look at the bottom of it there in verse 6. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. What has he actually told them? Nothing he should know already. Of course God's watching. God sees everything. But he didn't tell him it'd be good or it'd be bad. He said with beautiful, eloquent words, absolutely nothing. He's good at this job. For hire, as a priest. If you're, if if you're going to buy your own pastor, you certainly want to hear from him what you want to hear, right? If you're going to get a politician in your pocket, you want them to say what you want them to say, right? This is working perfectly as, as, as far as these people. This is all right in their own eyes. Not to speak at all about what the Lord has in store for them. Between verses 7 and 13, which I'll summarize for you, um, they continue on and find the perfect place to settle. That is the tribe of Dan, rather. It was cut off from the surrounding people groups, had everything needed to prosper. Nobody would sound an alarm. They'd be able to wipe them out pretty easy. And they are convinced that God had given them into their hands. Likely that was not the case. By verse 14, the five spies are on their way back and they meet up with the rest of the tribe of Dan who are headed their way and would you guess where they actually meet up and stop for a moment? Micah's house. And uh, as we pick up in the story, uh, which we will do when I get to the right page here. Verse 14. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish, that was the name of the town that they had found, said to their brothers, Do you know what is in these houses? There are an ephod, a household god, a carved image, and a metal image. Now therefore consider what you will do. Well, that sounds like a setup, doesn't it? Five spies meet 600 men standing at the door of the house of Micah and tell them, Hey, You got any idea what's inside those walls? Verse 15. They turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. That would not go unnoticed. And the five men who had gone out to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. Verse 18, And when these went to Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And you wonder how he said it. Because I want to know whether he's in on this or not. I kind of think he's in on this. So it would be more like... What are y'all doing? (laughs) Rather than, what are you doing? We don't know. But they said to him, keep quiet. As if they know what they're doing. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us. And here's, here's the bribe, if it's necessary. And be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be priest to the house of one man? Or to be priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? What does he do? Verse 20, And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. Now, if you notice, Micah's missing in this paragraph. Probably not at home, but we realize that uh, it doesn't take long before he hears someone 
and the news that happened. Verse 21, so they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. Why would they do that? Well, because if Mike is going to find out and try to chase them down and take it all back, that will come from the rear. So they put all their goods and what's important to them up front. That way maybe they could split off if there's an attack. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the house near Micah's house were called out and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan who turned around and said to Micah. So Micah's there. And this exactly happened as they thought it would. What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? So that's Dan to Micah. What's, what's this business? So Micah says to them, You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away and what have I left? How do you ask me what is the matter with you? You've taken everything I have. Verse 25, The people of Dan say to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. And that's basically the end of that. As far as Micah's concerned, we don't read about him again. Uh, the way the story ends is kind of abrupt. We get to verse 27. We see what happens to the rest of the folks in the story. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him. And they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Sidon, that's the next city nearby. And they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. They built the city and lived in it. They named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born in Israel, but the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, well, we finally get the Levite's name, the son of Gershom, son of Moses. Now, most agree that there's probably some generations between those, but he's a descendant of Moses. Great, great, maybe great, great grandson. And his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. And there's some speculation based on the dating of this book, which captivity that is. When the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant and got away with it for a while. Or when God had had enough and the ten northern tribes were carted off by another enemy. That might be what it is. Either way, both of them happened. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. And if you'll recall, when the kingdom split, Jeroboam went north. Rather than having people go back down to the southern tribes to worship, he set up golden calves in two locations. One of them was at Dan. This is the beginning of the idolatry that will spell the end of the northern tribes, that unlike the southern tribes, would not return. In other words, this right here is not finished and it will not be complete until those idolaters are scattered and scattered for good. So the message of this half of the appendix, 17 and 18, is pretty clear. 
It's all about idolatry. But applying the wasness of what happened to these people, these Hebrews, Micah, Levite, tribe of Dan, and what takes place as far as the isness of our own culture where we live right now, that translation may be a little difficult, as I had said earlier, because all God's children, especially Christians, this side of the Old Testament, can be a, a very self-righteous lot. It's with great ease sometimes we close our Old Testament and say, that was barbaric, those knuckle-dragging cavemen of, of, of God's chosen people aren't the sophisticated, enlightened educated uh, Christians that we are today. But remember, what we learned in verse 6 was an explanation for the behavior we see in those chapters. It wasn't because they were stupid. It was because there was no king. And it was because they chosen to do what was right in their own eyes. I don't see any difference in our culture today. When there's no king... And when people do what's right in their own eyes, it's just as idolatrous as it was then, it is now. And what we would do to take it from what it was and to put it in what is now, is just to make the simple distinction between the king in Israel and King Jesus that we serve now. Now when he's talking about a king here, we've got to remember Judges was written during the period of the kings, talking about things that happened before the period of the kings, right? So if you're reading this when it was fresh off the presses by whoever wrote Judges, you're probably a subject under King David or King Solomon or maybe any one of the kings in the north or the south, depending on where you're reading this. But what he's saying, there wasn't a king then. And where we have some semblance of order now under King David or Solomon. It didn't then. Where it might not be any different today. You know, back when uh, most people in America had an understanding of the Bible and God. There was a king. Not really. We left a king in England to have no king but Christ. Is that changed? Of course it's changed. A lot has changed. But... Picture all of this in your own mind. When there is no king in your life, in our case it'd be King Jesus, you will inevitably do what's right in your own eyes. You'll probably take the high road. You'll think it's right. You'll pat one another on the back. But that's what people do. And what will that look like here and now? I don't think it'll look a whole lot different than the way it did in the period of the judges. You say, well, I don't know about that. Well, it doesn't have to do with making idols and paying silversmiths and hiding them in your house and having them stolen by bands of marauders. But the pieces here are the same. So here's uh, four of them. You can write these down. We'll pull these right out of the text. We'll use a verse here or there to back it up. But this is what I see as far as how we fit in what this means to us. Number one, when there's no king, and that's going to be for all of these, you will wander off into extreme individualism. That's what they had done. And that's what we will do. If there's no king. Americans do this really good. We condition one another. To say that the way to succeed. The way to, to feel 
as you should in our culture, is to decide who you want to be and then demand that everybody else applaud it. Regardless of any pain or suffering or problems that that causes anyone else, it's your right to be who you want to be, how you want to be it, with whomever you want to be it. You design who you are. Everybody else has to say, we agree. It doesn't work. Because we're doing that at the same time. So everyone lives as a massive conflict of interest to the other who's not exactly like themselves. And it's causing all types of problems. But that's what we do as Americans. Well, that's what they do here. Much of the story of Micah and his mother, as bizarre as it is, is as bizarre as their self-interests are unique. Does that make sense? Their story is customized to them. Stories we have are customized to us. Said another way, when there's no king, you will begin to customize your settings to suit your own interests. A little less of this, a little more of that. This guy over here thinks he's got to study the Bible all the time. Well, I don't need as much because I ain't going to seminary. So I don't need that. And this guy over here thinks I shouldn't be involved in that. But I've read what Paul says and it's all okay. As long as nobody gets upset over it. So I'm going to stay away from the people that would get upset over it. And I'm going to have a little more of that. And you just, you make it up. I don't want to waste your time. You got to eat later. I think you get the point. New Testament is very clear about what the gathered church should look like. And the authority of Scripture governs its pattern and its purpose. You'd be surprised how out in left field a church can get when there's no preaching of the Bible there. And the further it goes down that road of no Bible being taught and them doing what's right in their own eyes, the weirder that church is going to get to the point to where any visitor that walks in is only going to hear this ridiculous inside joke that they don't get. Everybody inside that church will get that joke, but they won't because they're just doing their own thing. And it might not necessarily be bad unless, of course, it's a church that God designed for a place where His Word is taught. And the same is true with your home. Take the king away, you'll do what's right in your own eyes. You'll be surprised how customized your family may become. Number two, when there's no king, you will use religion to get what you want. We get this out of verse 13. Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. By the time we got to verse 13, it was clear that Micah's off here. But in verse 13, we see his motives. He wants to prosper. So put crudely, this Levite is actually Micah's rabbit's foot. He's his good luck charm. And he hopes to score big. The tribe of Dan isn't any better. They steal the rabbit's foot, shopping around for a word from the Lord. Jonathan's happy to tell them what they want to hear. And then he makes it big once they set all that up in Dan. Here's a good point. Be careful when you shop around for a better word from the Lord. God only speaks from His Word. And if you've got the right connections and you uh, grease the right palms, you can probably get a word from a guy who's supposed to know something or another that suits what you want to do. But it doesn't end well because it's not God's Word. And you're right on the precipice of, of idol worship 
at that point. Number three, when there's no king, faithfulness will never be enough. That's what Christ is calling for all through the New Testament is our faithful service to him in his kingdom. He's king, we're his servants. Faithfulness. What does it say at the end? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's the job. But when there's no king, faithfulness is not enough. You want something other than just faithfulness because that's not what you're in for if you've thrown off kingship. Faithful service to the king is not enough for the person who rejects God. Self-service is all over this story. It's no different today. (laughs) I thought of this, and then I thought it sounded interesting. But I I, want to say it with a caveat that this is not my experience. But how many search committees do you think use that very question? Wouldn't you rather be pastor over a bunch of people than just a handful of people and how many pastors respond with a happy heart as he did and nothing is said as to whether or not that's God's will now that was not the question your search committee asked in fact I think even if it might have popped into their mind it had already been killed at the beginning where we decided hey I'm where I'm at until I know I'm not supposed to be there. And that's only God's grace that would put a group of people together, determined, we're going to lead this search by this book. In fact, that was the book they used to do it with. When the Word leads your pastoral search. That's not what's going on here. Because when you throw off the king, faithfulness is not what you're after. It's yourself that you're after. It's the influence you're after. It's it's the big splash It's the bank account, it's whatever else. Um, And with this verse, you you pretty much go from uh, everything as it should be uh, to TV evangelism. (laughs) When it's right in their own eyes and telling people what they want to hear and for a pound of flesh. One more. When there's no king, you will continue to worship something else. Because we've all been created to worship. And you will worship something. There's never a time where you won't be worshiping. You're supposed to worship your creator. And if not God your creator, then something else. And the, the, the indication, the, the giveaway for this, you will know the objects of your worship by the great deal of emotion that you attach to the things you have replaced God with. Does that make sense? Remember what... Micah had said, you took my gods that I made and the priest I had and went away and what have I left? I don't have anything left. Those are all my eggs. You took the basket with all my eggs in it. And it's a horrible story. So in the end, this man wound up with nothing. Kind of like the foolish friend some of you may have known that, that just always put his money in the worst investments for the dumbest reasons. And in the end, he came and embarrassed it's all gone that's what happened here what takes place when you trade kingship for the worship of something else is always a bad trade and if you want to know where it's at just analyze your time your 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 money your conversations your schedule you'll see it and i could spend some time just giving you examples but what would happen 
is that some of you that don't have any issue with that because you're idle something else would probably tell somebody else what I said and because it is their idol and because they've got enormous amounts of, of, of emotion attached to this thing that they're flirting with that's not God, it's more important than God, there'll be pieces of them all over the room when they hear it. The better way to do it is just let God's word speak. You fill in the blank. What have you replaced God with and why? Why is he not king? Why are you doing what's right in your eyes and not his eyes? We all do that. Turn, this is how we'll close, to First uh, John, all the way toward the end of the Bible. First, um, second, third John, John, Jude, and Revelation. You know who John is. He wrote John's Gospel. Then he wrote First John. And he wrote John so that we would know... How to be saved. He wrote 1 John to help us know how to have assurance of salvation. But it, it's amazing what he says. And he's old. He's, he's, he's at the end of his usefulness. He's lived longer than any of the disciples. And he closes out the little addendum to his gospel by saying this in verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come... This is uh, chapter 5, last two verses of the book. And has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Verse 21, last sentence. Little children, that just means His students. Keep yourself from idols. As if to say, you'll never outgrow your attraction to idols. Ever. There'll always be an idol. Sin is that powerful. Sin can take your career and replace God with it. It can take your money, your grandchild, your child's success trajectory into whatever you hope for them and how many things it takes to get them from that point to the next and replace God with it. Sin is that powerful. And especially those of us who like to control things. And I'm speaking as chief. We want all the options, right? All the choices. And before too long, we realize in agony with a schedule that we cannot keep, that those choices and those options are controlling us. It's become an idol. We didn't even mean for it to be. Because we didn't listen to John. Watch out. For idols. And here's the point of it all. Idols can't die for your sins. Your career can't die for your sins. Your children can't die for your sins. Your wife can't die for your sins. Your checkbook can't die for your sins. They all are bad investments. But when Christ has died for your sins... And He rules your life. All those other things are blessings He uses to show you how much He loves you. But just like the little kid who seems to wander off with the box that the toy came in on Christmas morning. Sometimes we get caught up in the packaging of what God had in store for us. And as wise as John is, keep yourself from idols. Let's pray. Father in heaven. We are not innocent of 
the sin of idolatry. A story from long ago has made that abundantly clear. If we're honest with ourselves, we listen to what we talk about, we look at what we spend our money on, we look at how we manage our schedules, we'll see that it's quite often that our heart is prone to wander. Sometimes we feel it, prone to leave the God we love. Lord, forgive us of this and restore to us our relationship with you. Help us to put them away and to be used of you and to get up tomorrow morning and do it again. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask all this in your name. Amen.